Happy Chinese New Year. It's the year of the tiger. And welcome to the February 1st, 2022 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, a Meredith Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Cassandra Kazor a Chicago-based composer, pianist, multimedia artist, multi-instrumentalist, and entertainer. She has performed on piano, drums, bass, and as a vocalist in 19 states, on cruise ships, and in Europe. Kazor has produced a musical, ballet, several short film scores, and many multimedia pieces with other artists. She previously worked concert curator at Awakenings Foundation, a space that focuses on the work of sexual assault and abuse survivors. After receiving their Judith Dawn Memorial Fund grant in 2015, she was also an, arti an artistic collaborator and consultant on musical matters for the Sunflower Project. Kazor has a master's degree in music composition as a performing arts scholar from Roosevelt University's Chicago College of Performing Arts, where she studied privately with Dr. Kyung Mi Choi. She won the Michael Hall Viola Composition Competition in 2017 and the Zodiac Trio Competition in 2016 during her graduate career. Prior to this, she studied with Curtis, Curtis Smith and Christopher Biggs at Western Michigan University. Kazor was awarded residencies at the Jurassic Resident Artist Program and the IPARC International Artist in Residence Program. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Cassandra Kazor. Hello, Cassandra. 
Hello, Dr. Hurst. It's really great to uh, talk with you, and it's a pleasure to have you on my show. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Let's get right to talking about a subject that is really near and dear to me. Uh, as someone myself who is eclectic in my musical tastes, and also one who straddles the world of academic, quote unquote, schooled art music and popular music. I'm curious as to what is your view of how one arena informs the other in terms of your creative output? Sure. Uh, there are a thousand ways I could answer this, but I'll, I'll try and be concise. Um, I don't think we can have one without the other. Mm -hmm. I think that um, art music, you know, academic music is always very forward thinking, very technical, very experimental. Um, and it's a research field, right? What can we do? What can, what can we create? Let's test the limits of what we can create. But at the same time, um, just that method alone or approach to creating art would be, I feel empty without pop sensibility and having a finger on the pulse of culture. What is popular? What is palatable? Um, and in the same way, pop music does experiment with certain things that art music maybe have uh, art music art musicians have overlooked, and so um, definitely the two hand in hand can help each other with really cool new sounds or really innovative techniques with different instruments. So, um, yeah, I yeah I personally cannot have one without the other. Okay, okay. Well, I I see that as a kind of an interesting. Uh... Uh, position. It's like uh, I was attending a pre-concert lecture. Oh, it's been a, about three weeks ago, Madison Symphony. And one of the pieces they were doing was uh, uh, rugby by uh, Onager. Okay. And, uh, and that's, was it Onager or D&D? Onager, I believe. Anyway, I can't remember now the con the the, the composer but it was a early you know mid 20th century composer and uh the person that was giving the uh, talk said that composers were discovering that people could not take most people long you know extended pieces that had a lot of dissonance in other words, kind of the more what was for that time forward thinking uh, in terms of music. And so he tended to focus on still maintaining some of those newer techniques, but putting them in the shorter, more bite-sized kinds of pieces. So they were more palatable to people. And I think you make a really excellent point in that, like with research, we don't concentrate or concern ourselves with whether or not uh, are the findings of our research are uh, popular or palatable. I mean, I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of research studies uh, that probably get read by uh, a review committee in a journal and get published in a journal, and then it might get read you know, once or twice, but that journal typically just gathers dust in the, in the library and only is there really for other people continuing to do research and wanting to do some background. 
I think you made an excellent point, which I had not thought about before, that uh, academ- in, the, in academia, uh, schooled art music is experimentation because we're not focused on doing what is necessarily popular or palatable to the consuming musical public. We're just trying to look at all of the possible options or directions that we might be able to take music, regardless of whether anybody likes them or not. You know, I think that's an excellent point. And, uh, you know, of course, popular music uh, certainly has informed art music. Uh, and there has been some art music that has become very popular. And uh, so I think you're absolutely right that they coexist and they do inform each other mm-hmm. and, and always have. I mean, I could you could even go back, I think, to Bach, the coffee cantata. Mm-hmm. Why did he write this? He, it, was, it wasn't performed in a concert hall. It wasn't performed, I don't believe, in a church. It was performed in a coffee house. And that's because in the 18th, you know, early uh, to mid-18th century, coffee was becoming one of the most popular beverages in, in Europe. And, uh, and, and, of course, to Germans, that was seen as a threat to their numero uno, which was beer. Oh, and uh, there was even a time when there was a law passed about, you know, and, and so here's Bach writing this coffee cantata, which in a sense intimates the bad effects of coffee, uh, although it's sort of tongue in cheek and humorous. So in a sense, kind of a popular sort of thing. So very good points, I think, what you're what you're getting at. Uh, let's uh, with the, your kind of your popular mode in mind. Let's move on to your new EP, sure. which is entitled "Super Millennial Burnout Kid." <laughs> now that's an interesting title, uh, and and I really found a lot of interest, personal interest in the music on this EP. Uh, the first song, uh, "The Kid." I could not help but make comparisons to the music of Frank Zappa. Thank you. I was tremendous. I am tremendously flattered by that uh, in every way possible. Well, and I'm sure there are more contemporary examples of of maybe what I'm thinking, you know. But I'm of an age where that that Frank Zappa would be the first person to come to mind. Maybe Captain Beefheart after that. Uh, maybe uh, 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 you know. Uh, the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper album, things like that. But so would you comment about about the kid and and some of its influences? Yeah, absolutely. So this whole EP, um, just to give context to the conversation, is, uh, well, I turned 30 this year and I realized that my teenage self didn't get to write a lot of the music she wanted to write growing up because I grew up in a Uh, more conservative household and classical music was, you know, the paragon of genres and things. Um, And so I wanted to write all the music that my 15 year old self didn't get to write on this. Uh, So it's all through that lens of my adolescence. Um, The kid in particular, so I have to give a shout out to the gentleman who played the B3 on that track. His name is Justin Rosinski. Um, I did not play B3 on that track because he's just tremendous. But 
Um, I also have a background in writing musical theater. And so I wanted an, an opening to the album that would show, hey, this is a teenage kid. This is her perspective on these following songs. Um, hence the ending where she's screaming, why are you in my room? Why are you reading my diary? Kind of a, of a thing too. Um, so definitely, I, I love Zappa, so that's that's a compliment. But um, yeah, that's just my, my expose or like my prelude to the more musically active songs to come. Okay, okay. Well, and you know, it, it, Frank Zappa also wrote music in the art music realm as Ooh. well. And, uh, and uh, even though his music was popular, it was very much on the fringe. But mm -hmm. uh, but there there were there were those of us that were were nuts enough to really dig it and 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 uh, find a lot of that great tongue in cheek humor that he always seemed to put across and I kind of picked up on that in your yours as well. Mm -hmm. um, the, the other thing that as uh, we move along the the uh, uh, SMBK which is Super Millennial Burnout Kid in abbreviation mm -hmm. I'm assuming. Yep. Uh, also, to me, had elements of something that, that came right out of like speed metal, like Metallica, uh, that really grinding, you know, kind of guitar and, and pushing. And is, is that also something that that you uh, felt like you were trying to imbue as, in that particular song? Yes, I have a lot to say about the title track. Can I say one more thing about? Oh, go, yeah, go ahead. Because we're talking about pop music, but we're talking about art music. Um, and actually, the uh, my friend who played B3 um, on The Kid, he also did the Wurlitzer on the final track, Arrived. And I asked him to improvise around those changes and those melodies. So it, in that way, it was a through-composed kind of idea for the oh. um, so I had to throw that in there for since we're talking art music too. Oh, very cool, very cool. Because yeah. most most pop songs are not through composed. Yeah, there's a lot of recurring stuff that happens. Um, yeah, can't turn composer brain off even when I'm trying to write a rock song. Well, you know, and that's the thing. That's the thing that I think that makes uh, pop there are song singers songwriters who write in a in a popular vein who are informed by uh training in, in the classical arena they bring a certain extra something to the music mm -hmm. and uh, i had another singer songwriter i interviewed oh probably two three months ago uh and uh, like you had uh, uh training in uh university level composition you know and uh and has written some pieces uh that are not uh, say pop oriented, but her newest recording, her newest release is pretty much, you know, uh, what you would expect from a pop singer songwriter. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting, you talked about writing music for shows because 2005 kept reminding me of music from a contemporary Broadway musical. Oh, you know, when I'm saying contemporary, I mean, you know, and, and, and so I, I guess the question I have is that you know, we know, I, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say, okay, let's use Hamilton as an example, that Broadway musicals have incorporated sounds of contemporary rock and pop and hip hop uh, to sound this way. Um, but are you kind of coming from that angle to inform your song 2005? 
Uh, yeah, I can't shake the musical theater either. Um, so mm. one of my first big creative compositional endeavors uh, was that I wrote my high school's senior musical. Oh. Yeah. So from 15 to 16, I did the whole thing. I did the, I did the book. I did the music. I did the incidental. I did the directing. I played and conducted the pit. I did everything. So wow. I have a lot of love and respect for musical theater too. So I've got the classical, I've got the, the rock. My dad was a wedding band guitarist, so can't avoid it. And then uh, I got the musical theater there as well. You know, you might just be the next Leonard Bernstein. Because, <laughs> oh, no. well, I mean, I, that's a pretty heavy thing to put on somebody. But, you know, I, 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 uh, I once heard the remark made about uh, there was nobody who wanted to be George Gershwin more than Leonard Bernstein. Ah. <laughs> okay, so if we trace all that back here, you've got Gershwin who wrote pop songs, but he also wrote concert music. Right. You've got Leonard Bernstein who writes, you know, concert pieces and 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 uh, but also uh, wonderful, you know, Broadway uh, musicals. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. The the, the remake Sondheim's uh, not Sondheim, excuse me. He just passed away. Spielberg, his uh, upcoming remake of West Side Story. Oh, yeah, because that's one of my favorite musicals. And, and of course, you know, Bernstein used elements of jazz and, and uh, elements of, of, you know, all of his experiences there. And so maybe that's really the direction that uh, music is going anyway. And sounds like you're following right on that path. Yeah, I think, um, I think genre purists really need to listen to more things. Um, I think you can find something beautiful in every genre of music. I'm also a huge hip hop head. I love mm -hmm. rap music too. So um, I think if you rule anything out, uh, I think you're just, you're missing out on the, the spice and the, the beauty of all the sound we can consume. And they, they I, have, oh, go oh, ahead, I'm sorry. It's okay. And I was just gonna say, I think they all have the potential to hold hands in a very tasteful and interesting way. I don't disagree at all. When I taught music appreciation, of course, my emphasis was on classical Western art music because that's what my students would be least familiar with. Mm. But I always included, you know, elements of, you know, other kinds of music as well. And I used to use this metaphor. I said, music is like going to the ice cream store. Mm -hmm. And there's all these different flavors and they're all wonderfully delicious. And you never want to just limit yourself to the vanilla, right. you know, not that I want, I have anything against vanilla, but there's so many wonderful flavors out there that we can, we can enjoy. And that's kind of the way I look at music too. I, you know, I, I try not to be a musical snob. Um, I'm curious about your song, hit me up. Yeah. Now, now hit me up. <laughs> the best way I thought I could describe it is an aggressive love song. <laughs> yes. You know, and it was, and again, it was, it was reminiscent of sounds that I'm generally familiar with from rock and pop music of the last couple of decades, but I, I didn't really formulate a, a specific reference. Uh, who are models for uh, your, for this song for you? Mm -hmm. uh... Whose template were you? Do you think you were adapting to? 
I don't think it was a singular source. Um, so I, I consume about two or three albums a week, like very thoughtfully. So I listen to a, a lot of music, but if I am thinking about the answer to this question through my lens as a 15, 16 year old kid who never got to write the music she wanted to, or not never, but maybe not as much as she wanted. Um, I would say Tori Amos is huge for me. Okay. Fiona Apple is huge for me. Ani DeFranco is huge for me. That's like my trife. That's my like secular holy trinity of, you know, angry women artists and uh, who all do very interesting things with um, harmony and time and rhythm and orchestration. Ani DeFranco is more on the folky end, but Tori Amos and Fiona Apple for sure very experimental. And uh, that's that's definitely if I had to hey. pick a couple. Yeah. Oh, all right. Good. Yeah, I can. I. I. Uh, I. I'm not. You know, completely in the dark about who those people are, and I. I he do hear that. Yes. Um, I. I also uh, will confess that uh, your song "I Wish You Well" is one that I haven't really quite figured out. Ah, yeah. uh, it's either okay. This is where I am so far, and then you can straighten me out. Ooh. It's either. A sarcastic statement made mm -hmm. to an ex-lover out of spite, mm -hmm. or it is one of reconciliation after coming to terms with a breakup. Either way, it seems to come on the heels of a relationship that did not work. Would you comment? Definitely comes on the heels <laughs> of a relationship that did not work. Um, I, uh, But not a romantic one. I wrote it about a friend a very dear friend. And then I realized later, uh, perhaps I had written it more about a family member. Mm -hmm. And then the more I just sat with it, it was also kind of a love letter to myself. Oh. Um, so, and not a love letter, just a, you need, you need some healing kind of a letter. And it, uh, it does have very pure intentions. It's not sarcastic. It's not spiteful. It's really, it's it's a love letter to these various people in my life and then ultimately to myself. I I I look up to you. I wanted to be like you and you were so hurt and then you just took all that hurt and you gave it to me. Mm. And I had to absorb it. So and then the same thing like those opening lines uh, you were broken as a little girl that's not your fault. That was also to me. So yeah. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting perspective because the most obvious kinds of things that we would think about in terms of relationships would be relationships with others. But, you know, we do have a relationship with ourselves and we do cause ourselves pain sometimes. Mm -hmm. And we need to uh, and we need to uh, uh, find ways to forgive ourselves and reconcile that and go on. I think that's a, a very excellent. I'm going to listen to that with a whole different set of ears now. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, be because I, I, like I said, I hadn't quite figured it out. And, and now that really gives me a, a, a much better understanding to, to give it another listen. Uh, then the last song that I wanted to speak with you about is Arrived. Yeah. And Arrived is, uh, comes across to me, it's like a, it's a power ballad mm -hmm. about survival. Am I anywhere close? Yes. And no. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I don't write um, a lot of... So like Burnout Kid is very direct, right? I just put it all out there. This is what's happening. 
um, definitely I Wish You Well and, and Arrived are more obscured. Um, again, like the album is, it matures as it goes on, right? We have Little Kid to Arrived, which is um, about the death of a close friend this year. Oh, okay. And uh, I'm, I'm like agnostic on a good day, atheist on a bad day. And my friend was very, very devout Christian. Um, he was a deacon in his church and he passed away suddenly, never used alcohol, never used drugs, uh, but one of the most brilliant musician, musicians I've ever known. And so that uh, arrived is a love letter to him. I don't know where you're going because I don't believe in you know, heaven or anything, but I hope wherever you're going, I hope you have arrived. Okay. I hope you have what you wanted, you know, in your next life or whatever. Okay. Yeah. But so, and again, it's in a sense of another reconciliation for you and, and this other person. So that's, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it in general. Oh, can I, can I chime in on one more thing with the EP? Oh, sure. Sure. You bet. Because we, I, I misdirected us when we were trying to talk about uh, Super Millennial Burnout Kid. Okay, sure, um, and go I, ahead. I want to say Arrived and Burnout Kid, I co-wrote with my husband. Okay. Um, so he did the music for Arrived, I did the lyrics, I didn't write the music. And then Burnout Kid, um, are you familiar with, I just have to like give a shout out to my husband on that one. Are you familiar with um, the choreography technique known as wrecking? I am not. Okay. Um, Tell me about it. Sure. Yeah. I, I wish more musicians would like think about it. Um, so it's, it's, it's by and for dancers. Uh, I learned about it. I was a resident artist at Jurassic in 2018 and the choreographers there, we talked a lot cause I've done a lot of writing for dancers. I love working with dancers. Um, but the process is that you basically create, this is for dancers. So I've adapted it as a musician. You create a work of art and then you give it to somebody you trust and they can change the order of things. They can change, they're very specific rules, but like the order of things, you can take things or add, or take things away or add things. Um, and if you, like, you can basically like arrange it, but you cannot like, you cannot change the spirit of it basically. So I had written Super Millennial Burnout Kid as a ballad, a very, very mopey ballad. <laughs> hey. I gave it to, my husband's a songwriter. So I gave it to him. I said, why don't you wreck this? And he came back uh, with a, yeah, like a speed metal rock song, which okay. I, I love it. And I, it's my favorite track on the whole EP, but it mm -hmm. wouldn't have been that without that wrecking process to kind of mm -hmm. turn it into what it, what it is now. Wow. Wrecking. I'm going to have to look that up. That sounds very interesting. Yeah. I'll forward um, you an email I have about it. Yeah. That would be cool. Mm -hmm. I, uh, because I'm not, not familiar with it. It sounds sort of similar to me, I mean, in hearing how you describe it, it's sort of like uh, improvising along a particular theme that you're given, uh, almost. It's, but you're still working with fixed elements. Yes. Um, and I'm trying to remember, there's a tradition, it's in the, I, I think it's in the Middle East, where they have fixed melodic and rhythmic formula. Yeah, Macomb. Yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, they create a musical composition 
by how they put those different elements together. It, 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 I kind of got the impression when I learned about it, it's sort of like, you know, in the Western t- tradition, we learn all our major and minor scales because that's the, you know, kind of the basis of, of what, you know, music is, is, is built on. And there they learn these particular melodic formulas and then they can improvise uh, and extend the piece can be as long or short, whatever. It, it sounds fat, but wrecking kind of sounds like a little bit of a different twist. So I'll be very interested in learning more about it. Yeah. It sounds really interesting. Okay. Um, well, you've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the people you work with and influences, but would you talk about what music or musicians may, you may have modeled your singing style. Let's talk about just your singing. Huh. Um, that's a more difficult question for me to answer because I did a little bit of classical voice when I was in high school, but otherwise um, I learned, I found my voice by um, doing pop music gigs. Okay. I don't have any like formal pop music or theater training for my voice. Um, I've just accompanied a lot of singers. So, you know, I've kind of sat in on their lessons and picked up a few things, but um, I really like the, like the few years where like emo music was really popular, like 2002 to 2008. Like I really love emo music too, um, which tends to, you know, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't, I don't have like any vocal heroes or anything like that. I just, okay. I sing kind of for work in, in a very like practical sense. And, and then here we are. I just try to stay in tune. <laughs> okay. Well, there's probably a lot of uh, influences that we all are, are subject to that we're, that are not necessarily readily apparent, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it comes from our listening and our experiences. So um, you know, and everybody recombines all of their experiences differently. So that's what makes us each unique. Sure. I so. mean, if it's helpful, I think I've been told most on gigs that I sound like pink. That's, oh. that's the number one thing people have said to me. And then Lady Gaga second, but I don't hear it, but uh, that's what I've heard. So, yeah, well, we don't sound like ourselves to ourselves anyway. Yeah. You know, when you listen to your voice on a recording, you go, I can't believe that's me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, then talking about songwriters, who are songwriters that you've admired and patterned your songwriting after? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, how many hours do we have? Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I love so many artists. Again, that kind of uh, the 90s kind of experimental Fiona Apple, Tori Amos thing, for sure. Uh, emo bands. Uh, early Panic at the Disco was really experimental and like a, a Fever You Can't Sweat Out is an album that just I've always admired for its creativity. Um, probably my number one album of all time is uh, is A Real Boy by Say Anything. Um, the main person in that is Max Bemis. I'm a huge fan of his. Um, and I think he's one of the most interesting artists uh, of my generation, uh, pretty much. Um, and I, I quote him in my book with permission and I've talked to him a couple times, um, kind of through his management and stuff, but, uh, not personally, just like, can I ask this of Max? <laughs> but, um, 
he definitely that that album is a real boy and then there's a b-side was a real boy is probably like my number one album of all time in terms of what lives in my brain when i'm going what's gonna make a really cool interesting song so. okay okay all right i think that's a that's a very fair assessment i, I think we a, all go ahead oh sorry I said, as a piano player of course i have to say ben folds ben folds five you know okay and bruce hornsby and all that too oh sure 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 yeah well um, kind of going along a philosophical line, the ancient Greeks claimed that the purpose of tragedy and drama was to serve as an emotional catharsis for those witnessing the drama. One could experience the emotional pain of what they were witnessing on the stage without having to bear the actual pain of what was being viewed on stage. So is the aesthetic purpose of your songs, and maybe I should embrace all of your music, is the aesthetic purpose of your music to provide an emotional cleansing for your listeners? Uh, or are you, as other songwriters uh, have done, simply serving as an observer of human relationships and making personal commentary? Um, I think depending on the, the song or the piece or the work, it, it's, it could be a little more of one or a little more of the other, but I'd say a little bit of both at all times. Um, I definitely write from, uh, so I have complex PTSD, so I write a lot about experiences to process them, um, but I also know that a lot of the music that helped me was music that I could listen to and go, well, I feel like that, so I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. so that's a big part of it for me, too, but I've written a bunch of songs um, where I'm like, oh, I'll just tell a story. I'll make up a story and tell a story. I've, I've read a lot of Pat Patterson's uh, books and stuff like that, where he talks about um, how to construct lyrics to be optimally effective for affective reasons or, or something like that. So I also do a lot of writing that is like, okay, this is just an exercise to write a good folk song or a good country song or mm -hmm. um, a good pop song that would go on the radio, unlike my EP. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, because there's, I guess, certain ways to put put words together that are going to have a uh, an appeal to a certain uh, audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. you also you also write music in the classical art music tradition. Mm -hmm. What works of note have you composed? Sure. Um, I would say my thesis was very important to me. It's called a relatively plotless opera about the usual. Um, and that, that combined a lot of rock sensibilities with art music it's for three amplified singers, rock band and strings pretty much, mm -hmm. but a lot of, yeah, the experimental weird, let's scream into the microphone and whisper and, you know, um, so that one was important to me. I would say my most notable composition on paper is called secondhand smoke. Yes. It's at least the one that I've gotten the most royalties from ASCAP for. Um, and it's been performed uh, all over the U.S. and in London and in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Well, and I want to follow up with that piece because it's written for solo viola. Yes. And you have written music, you know, for, for the viola. What is it about the viola that inspires you to write music for this instruments say in deference to the violin yeah that's a great which, which seems to be maybe a more popular choice certainly 
Um, and I have no no hatred for the violin. I just was uh, uh, my best friend growing up played the viola. And uh, so he was actually the first person I ever wrote music for. We were probably 14 or 15. And then um, we both live in Chicago now. So we were hanging out during master's and he did an artist diploma program. And so he was always asking me to write for him or I was like, I wrote something for viola, please play it. Um, So we've always had a very awesome uh, working relationship. He also does the viola parts on I Wish You Well. So. So he has a great uh, pop sensibility too. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's, his name is Seth Pay. He's phenomenal, and uh, he just puts so much love and thought into everything that he plays. I, and then I think that's what made me fall in love with the viola is just the way that he plays it and thinks about it and loves the music that he plays. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an instrument that I I think in the mu- in, in musical circles sometimes gets mal or misaligned. Uh, you know, and, and of course I, but it is, uh, the timbre is beautiful. It has a certain, uh, quality to it. That is, is, uh, certainly say different than the violin yet. No less virtuosic, no less expressive. It's mm-hmm. just, uh, it's just sort of, a you know, a, a deeper voice, but it, it's always kind of been historically and traditionally sort of the second fiddle to the fiddle, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's great that you, uh, uh, you know, you write music and I hope you continue to write music. We need to champion uh, less, uh, less understood and appreciated instruments. And uh, yeah, so that's I great. Say, I have to say too, um, you know, I connected with, I found that violists and I don't know, you can tell me your experience. They are, always down for anything musically. Um, I found that at least more with violists. Um, I found that with Seth. I found that with uh, a viola player in London named Catherine Clark that I work with, who does a lot of experimental music with me. And I connected with her through a Chicago violist. You may or may not know him. His name is Michael Hall. Okay. Um, and he just loves championing new music. That's why my piece gets played in Indonesia, because he works with the Bandung Philharmonic. Um, but he's just always performing new music, uh, especially by women composers, which is really awesome. So yeah, I just think violists are a little more into the new music scene in my experience. Well, I, I don't disagree with you. And I, you know, and of course the big question always comes to mind with me is why? Well, that's because violinists, if they're going to be professional concertizing musicians, they're, they're, they're going to be expected to play, you know, the Mendelssohn, the, ba- the Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, you know, the, the, the standard mm-hmm. uh, concerti for, for violin that everyone loves and expects to hear when they go to a symphony orchestra concert, I guess. Uh, violists don't have that same kind of luxury other than with Berlioz, Harold in Italy, or I think Hindemith wrote a, a viola concerto. Uh, and uh, certainly the role of the viola in chamber music. But, uh, you know, it's sort of like uh, uh, when you're kind of, I hate to I hate to keep bringing this up, but I think there's a certain amount of truth to it that there's sort of the neglected part of the orchestra. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're kind of like, you know, the the go between. I mean, that's that's kind of how someone once describes it. The violas are just the go between between the second violins and the and the cello and the string mm-hmm. section. You know, well, it, but maybe that's why maybe that the, they're 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 open to lots of new things. But I think it's great. But I will tell you this: in the entire my entire career in teaching at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Waukesha, the best student I ever had was a violist. Oh, awesome. And she went on and she's now a successful uh, music educator here in the area and is just, uh, you know, a wonderful person. And I'm so happy for her. And I and she was always good about about, you know, viola jokes. Because she would always have have a good comeback for me, but uh, I think that's that's great. Uh, we've already kind of discussed how your how popular music has informed your composition when you talked about your thesis, um, and we've also in the in your opening remarks we unless there's something you would like to add we kind of you know it. Uh, talked about uh, characterizing popular music styles and how they're different from art music. And I think you gave a wonderful uh, discussion and description of, of that experimental versus what's completely more palatable. Um, then I guess the next thing I'd really like to ask you is, is the audience for the art music you write significantly different from the audience for your music in more popular styles? Hmm. And if so, how? That is a great question. Now, I want to follow up why I'm asking that question. Because even in your more popular styles, like the music from your EP, I would suggest is um, not mainline mainstream pop music. It's definitely uh, pushing the envelope. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I will preface this by saying I have a lot of really awesome friends um, who, if I said I'm going to, you know, live stream me doing jumping jacks, they'd go, okay, I'll tune in. You know, I just have wonderful friends. Um, but I think a lot of my, well, almost all my friends are professional musicians. And so in one way or another, they just get it. You'd put a lot of creative time and effort and blood and sweat and tears into this thing. I'll come to your concert, I'll come to your show, I'll come to whatever you're doing. Um, And I have managed to, I don't know if this has not been helpful for me, I've managed to kind of back away from people in the art music community who look down on pop music. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and so, and I found most people who like pop music will go, I'll go listen to your wacky art music. It's a, it's a little more uh, fluid. Um, but I, I guess the best way to kind of say what I'm trying to say, um, can I tell a little story? <laughs> sure, go right ahead. So, and this is a absolute, just shout out to my, my master's composition teacher, uh, Dr. Kyungmi Choi, but I did my EP and book release party and I sent her an email. I said, Hey, I'm doing this. I just want you to know I'm still doing creative stuff. It was on a Sunday night. I said, I know you have to teach in the morning. Uh, you don't have to come, but I'm, I'm doing something just so you know, because we just, 
you know, catch up with each other once in a while. And she said, yeah, I think I have to be up pretty early, but good luck. And then she and her husband, who's a very serious composer also, they both showed up. And I was almost mortified because my opener for that show uh, does an act where she takes off clothes as she plays like over her set until she's down to like pasties and lingerie um, and sings very like intense songs, which are really cool. Her name's Emma Grace. Um, and I was looking at Dr. Choi and she was like, this is awesome. And then <laughs> I, I went and did my set. I was playing bass and screaming and cussing and all the stuff I do on the EP. And she was like standing on a couch, like, woohoo. So I think that for people who love sound, there isn't like, there doesn't need to be a disconnect, mm-hmm. you know, between the different genres. No, I, 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 I really, I like that as well. I mean, that's, that's right in my wheelhouse. I mean, you know, and while it's, you know, you probably don't have too many, and this is a, an overused term, but you probably don't have too many Joe and Mary six packs in your audience. Uh, I, I would think general public, uh, but you do have those people who are informed enough or musically uh, hip enough to to understand good the good music, but that all of us as creative artists hunger for new and different sounds, yes. regardless of whether they're coming out of a viola or out of an electric guitar or a doo-wop sounding vocal quartet. You know, I mean, if it's a new kind of sound, that's what we hunger for. And uh, I think, uh, you know, that's uh, spot on about your, you know, the audience in which you're you're creating. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. Sure. Right. I want to I want to switch gears completely. Mm-hmm. Well, not really completely, because it's still about you. <laughs> <laughs> but you're also this is for my audience's benefit. You are also a writer. And you have a novel out entitled Industry. What is the plot of Industry all about? What is this novel about? Well, thank you. Um, I have it. I know your listeners can't see it, but I have it here. Um, And I'm just going to read the summary on the back so that that'll be as clear as possible. Um, Okay. So uh, it's about a bassist named Charlie. Uh, She's in her mid-20s and she plays rock cover shows all over the Midwest and East Coast with her bandmates. What she thought was a dream job reveals the ugly reality of the music industry, the part that lurks in green rooms or on tour buses, away from the bright, fun facade of the stage. As she travels the forgotten byways of America, she navigates the accelerating challenges to her tenacity and discovers how far she's willing to go in the name of her career. Oh, very good. (laughs) Oh, this sounds great. Uh, Is it just a little, a, a tad... Uh, autobiographical at least from the standpoint of are you the are you the main character I am I am not we have to call this a work of fiction Uh, (laughs) but it is a Frankenstein uh, all the characters are Frankensteins of people I've met Um, I've worked with hundreds of great musicians and not so great musicians and I've played for I did the math one day probably you know close to a million people in the 10 years I've been doing this in all the different wow. Um So everybody is, yeah, it's a, it's a Frankenstein of stories and memories and people I've met. And of course, a little bit of my own experience. Okay. 
Well, great. Yeah, well, so industry and uh, is, uh, is Cassandra's novel. So you'll, listeners, you'll want to check that out as well. Okay, so then I have the $64,000 question. Okay. Is, your music, is your music influenced by your writing? Because I imagine you write other things other than novels. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I did, like I said, I wrote my high school musical. I did write a book in high school. Um, I write a lot of poetry. I wrote the poem that accompanies secondhand smoke, actually. Um, there's a poem to be read before the, the performance. Um, and then I write a ton of pop songs. So I write lots and lots of lyrics. And then, you know, of course, grants and papers and all that stuff. But I love language. And I, I realized I started this just before the pandemic. I love words. You know, I love finding ways to communicate. You know, music does it on this beautiful, nuanced level that, you know, with or without words, it's just its own perfect mystery monster. That's beautiful, right? And then words, you can be so clear or you can be so vague and it's just fun to play with them. So um, yeah, I do, I do write about every day, at least something. Okay. Well, then I, th that leads me then to ask you about your creative process. And mm -hmm. I, I want to shift back to uh, music. Uh, but because you are a writer, do you usually start with uh, a lyric or at least some sort of uh, lyrical idea and then put the music to it? It's a great question. And I thought a lot about, it, about this this past week. Um, so twofold so everything i do definitely comes from a, an emotional reaction to something um so i start with a feeling and then i also said earlier uh, i love rap music and i love watching rappers freestyle and i never understood why until i realized that my whole let's say i'm writing a song that has both mu music and lyrics a pop song or something i will sit at the piano and i will freestyle words and chords and riffs until I find something that sticks and then I'll free, freestyle some more. I do everything at the same time at all times, pretty much. Oh, wow. So, so your create, your creative process for, is sort of organic. It's a brain vomit, a brain vomit. That's a new one. I used to like to say my muse spews. But, I like that better. <laughs> so that's, but brain vomit. That's a good one. I'm going to, I'm going to remember that. That's really good. Uh, okay. But then, so when you're freestyling, do you ever like uh, get a, get an idea or kick off a composition or a song just from a melodic idea and then put words to it later or similarly a rhythmic idea or even a particular set of chord changes? No. And no. Yeah. And, and maybe I'm the black sheep in, in this department, but um, there's a reason, especially for my EP, my husband has a, his name is John Charles Weston. I should have said that he has a tremendous sense of melody and harmony. Like he just loves that stuff. So I went to him and I was like, can you write some melodies for me? Um, I think of all the different musical components. Um, rhythm is my favorite. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like in Hit Me Up, I go into seven at one point. That's just one. I like doing, I have songs in five and so, you know, I like doing all that. But um, I have never been a big melody person. And okay. I suppose I should work on that. But yeah, I'm just a, let's see what comes out and then let's make it better kind of writer. Okay. 
All right. That's, yeah. that's a, that's a very honest, straightforward answer. I, I like that uh, because everybody's different. I've, I've talked to, I don't know how many singer songwriters, composers, jazz arrangers, whatnot in the past year. And everybody has, you know, mm -hmm. different strokes for different folks kind of reflecting back on your uh, musical career. What has been, uh, what have been some of the most memorable of your experiences? Yeah. There have been a lot of wonderful ones and a lot of terrible ones. Okay. But memorable. I didn't know if you wanted positive or negative, but we'll go positive. That's um, fine. I, so like I said, I've played for probably close to a million people. I played all over the U S I played on cruise ships. I played in Amsterdam. I played in London. Um, and that's just been incredible to meet so many people who are, some people have a lot in common, common with me. Some people are pretty different than me. And I think just kind of an overarching positive has been being able to connect with all these different people that I would never otherwise meet, you know, um, or have a conversation with, or be scared to have a conversation with, but I'm there doing a job. So I have to have a conversation. Um, I've had people say incredibly offensive things to me who by the end of the night were like, you know what? I like you. I'm like, I like you too. And that's very humanizing and cool. Um, in terms of, a fun story. I think the best gig I ever did, I did a great gig this Saturday that rivals it, but I was playing a double shift in Amsterdam and I did the uh, normal piano bar from, I don't remember the hours anymore. It was like an earlier shift, like probably like an eight to 11 or something like that. And then I went and I played a gay bar, a gay piano bar around the corner. <clears throat> And I got there and I had never played there. And I said, um, you know, I was, I was greeted by these two beautiful drag queens, just, just probably like six, five and higher in their heels. And I was like, hello. And they said, hello. I said, I think I'm supposed to play the piano here tonight. And then one of them just goes, the piano player's here. And the other one goes, the piano player's here. And a bunch of people start shouting that. And then they picked me up together and they carried me to the stage. And then the owner was like, the piano player is here, what do you drink? And I said, I like whiskey. And then he said, what kind? I said, I don't, anything really. I was just overwhelmed already. And then he climbed up this ladder to his top shelf and he's like, anything you want. And I was like, I don't even know what some of those whiskeys are. I've never had whiskey that nice. And then they just filled up my glass all night and everybody sang and requested just such fun music and they danced. And I think that's the most fun gig I've ever played. Oh, that's wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. Well, good for you. Good for oh, you. Yeah. Really loved and appreciated that particular night. Um, you know, kind of getting uh, back to uh, more current kind of uh, events, if you will, well, aside from recording the new EP, how have you been keeping mentally and musically active since since most live music has been shut down because of COVID-19? Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, I am back to work. I've got my booster, um, which is great. But I'm still songwriting. Um, and I have a couple of singles that I plan to release in the next couple of months. Um, I just have to go mic the piano and buckle down and get it done. Um, and I've also been teaching myself bass guitar. So I've never played mm -hmm. a string instrument. I did like two semesters of cello in my undergrad. I was awful. My roommates begged me to stop practicing at home. Um, but so I've been working on bass guitar as well. And that's been a nice new challenge. 
Okay. Well, it, yeah, it helps to learn new, a, a new instrument. You've pretty well then taken care of a couple of other questions, because if you're, you're planning a couple of singles, you're definitely writing songs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but do you, now that uh, your uh, EP is out, are you planning another one? Oh, I'm sure I will. I, I have a dream. Be okay, because I am a professional cover artist, I know <laughs> a thousand songs or probably more. Um, I play music in all genres. So I do have a dream down the road to do an EP in every style. So this was like a rock EP. I'd like to do a country EP. I'd like to do more of like a hip hop-ish EP. And then, you know, do an art music <coughs> kind of thing too. Okay. Um, but for now, it's just releasing the singles and... Um, I'm working on my second book as well. So wow, that sound, sounds like you've got a very full plate. That also sounds like a very interesting challenge mm -hmm. to to focus on a particular style and do songs, you know, all in that style for a particular EP. We'll look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Um, and then uh, you're you're act back active performing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's great. What where, what venues would we hear you perform? if we were to come to Chicago to see you? Um, I don't play most of the clubs anymore, um, but oh, I have, okay. I played uh, the Redhead Piano Bar, which is pretty famous for a while. I played the Zebra Lounge, which is also famous for eight years. I played um, still on and off at Sluggers. It's the, piano, the Dueling Piano Bar by Wrigley Field. Sometimes you can still see me there, but mostly I'm doing private parties for Howl at the Moon and then myself. Mm -hmm. um, however, in March, I'll be going back to my old job, which was a full-time job, uh, Wednesday through Saturday, eight to two. Uh, it's called Pete's Dueling Pianos, and uh, that's just a wonderful job that I'll have. It's my 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 day job, but it's at night. <laughs> yeah, your day job, but it's at night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's the way it is for musicians, you know. Yeah. If you, if you should tell a musician to show up at ten, it won't be at ten a.m. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so that'll be eight to two, and uh, I get to work with my husband, and I get to play bass and drums there too. We do some full band stuff. Sounds great. It's really fun. Well, Cassandra, is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about, or that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Oh wow, you were so thorough, and we talked about so many great things. I would just say. Uh, you know, if you're not a, a listener of, of many genres, maybe dip your toe in a different different pool, you know, and just see how that goes for you. Try a different flavor of ice cream. You might different find it. Yeah, you yeah. might find out that you like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Well, Cassandra, <laughs> thank you so much for taking uh, time uh, to talk with me today. And uh, I certainly want to wish you all the best with what I'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation and uh, please stay in touch anytime. Would love to chat. <laughs> you bet. Thanks again. All right. My pleasure. My discovery composer of the week is the Czech composer Anton Reika. Born in 1770, died in 1836, who was active in France and Austria. In addition to being a prolific composer, Reika was of particular importance as a theorist and a teacher in early 19th century Paris. After his family moved to Bonn in 1785, 
Reicha played the violin and the flute in the Hofkapell under his uncle's direction alongside Ludwig van Beethoven. Josef Reicha, Anton's uncle, may have given both Beethoven and Reicha composition lessons and introduced them to Bach's keyboard works. In 1787, Reicha conducted his first symphony and in 1789, he entered Bonn University. He met Haydn in the early 1790s at Bonn, and again in 1795 in Hamburg. In Hamburg, he taught the piano, harmony, and composition. He also devoted himself to composition, readings in mathematics, philosophy, and music, and meditation on the nature of composition and the methods of teaching it. His earliest known opera may have received its second private performance in Hamburg in 1796. Hoping for operatic success, Reicha went to Paris in 1799. Reicha could neither get his Hamburg librettos accepted nor find a suitable new one. By his Opus 20, the influences of the Mannheim composers, Gluck, Mozart, and Haydn, predominated. In Vienna, Reicha first went to visit Haydn, renewed his friendship with Beethoven, and took lessons from Albrechtsberger and Salieri. Shortly afterwards, Empress Marie Theresa commissioned Reicha to write Argeny, Regina di Granata, in which she sang at a private performance at the Imperial Palace. In Reicha's output, some individual works defy classification as purely musical, theoretical, or didactic. The 24 compositions in Praktische Bespiele of 1803 include demonstrations of forms and genres, bitonality, and fiendishly difficult sight-reading exercises. The text shows that Reicha foresaw how the art of modulation would pervade the new epic, and it reveals his predilection for mathematics and the philosophy of Kant. Although Reicha's operas failed, his fame increased. By 1817, many of his compositions had been published and were being performed. While in Vienna, Reicha wrote about 50 pieces mostly chamber works rich in melody and folk elements. Reicha's wind quintets show his refined sense of instrumental color and have served as models of their genre. Reicha had few composition pupils before 1809, but by 1817, eight of his students were already professors at the Conservatoire. These men, most of them accomplished musicians when they began studying with Reicha, spread his reputation for being precise, logical, 
efficient, and strict. In 1826, Berlioz and Liszt began studying with Reicha. Berlioz recalled that Reicha gave lessons for the rules and that, unlike Cherubini, his respect for tradition was not fetishistic and that he promptly recognized innovation. Liszt suggested that his own idiosyncratic use of fugue and his attitudes toward formal and rhythmic experiments might derive from Reicha. In 1835, one year before his death, César Franck became a pupil of Reicha for 10 months, a period of study that was to affect Franck's formal and tonal conceptions. Reicha's students and the treatise themselves in their many translations broadcast Reicha's theories beyond Paris and beyond his own time. Schumann noted that Reicha, Reicha's often peculiar ideas about fugue should not be ignored. Sector listed Reicha among the most important theorists of his time, and Schmettina knew Reicha's ideas. Until more is known of Reicha's music, the judgment of time on his importance as a composer must tacitly be accepted. His role as a seminal figure, however, seems clear. The All Music Guide lists well over 100 recordings of Reicha's works. Certainly much to enjoy from this lesser-known composer. In my show notes is a YouTube link to a performance of Reicha's Woodwind Quintet in E-flat major, opus 88, number 2, performed by the Alos Woodwind Quintet. Well, that wraps episode number 67. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing David Wimbush of the North Carolina-based band, The Collection. Other upcoming interviews include Portland, Oregon-based jazz trumpet player, Farnell Newton, the husband and wife singer-songwriting duo, The Bergamot, New Jersey-based jazz vibraphonist, composer, and arranger, Ben Galise, and my colleague at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, jazz trumpet player, Russ Johnson. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at H-U-R-S-T-C at U-W-M dot E-D-U. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.